Welcome to our 36th Set the Month in Motion monthly podcast and forum produced in partnership with the City of Fremantle's Building Business Capacity Program. My name is Denisha Quinlan and I'm the CEO here at the Fremantle Chamber of Commerce. I would like to start today by acknowledging the traditional owners on the land on which we gather, the Wajak people, and pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging. Our traditional owners are the oldest continuous culture on the planet and their connection to country provides a worthwhile starting point of reflection today as we think about the impact our businesses have on the environment, how we do a better job of managing our resources, and taking on the lessons of respect, balance, nurturing and learnings to take only what we need to ensure the natural resources of our world are not exhausted. We are operating in a time where regulators, shareholders, consumers, competitors and other stakeholders are placing more and more pressure on business to act in an environmentally aware and a sustainable fashion, to reduce their carbon footprint and to make a difference along with making a profit. It is an important principle that most business leaders acknowledge, however the landscape in which to make these changes is both complex and uncertain. This topic has been one of our small business and retail committees one that they have requested to be put on the agenda for Set the Month in Motion. And Plastic Free July this month seemed the perfect moment to stop, pause and discuss. We are joined today by three very different experts leading the charge in greening our worlds. And I'm really looking forward to today's discussion with them. We'll start by looking at businesses as a system, explore the role of nature and then deep dive into waste and plastics before bringing it all together towards the end of the discussion. So have your questions if you are online ready at this time to put to the panel. So I'm going to start with systems and I guess that very uh, business um, approach initially. And uh, first on our panel, I have Miles Drakeup. Uh, Miles is a past winner of our Sustainability Enterprise at the Fremantle Business Awards in 2021 and Principal of EAW Consulting Australia. Miles established his business EAWS Consulting as a sole trader in East Fremantle eight years ago and has lived and worked there since. He specialises in sustainability, environmental and water management and consults to a range of businesses from some small to some of Australia's largest businesses, both local and state government and authorities. You've been working in mining and pastoral industries and industrial and commercial infrastructure development and management, where you provided advice in areas such as water conservation and efficiency, management of water and environmental regulatory obligations and sustainability planning. Miles believes he's in a sweet spot where he can work on projects that align with his values, interests and background. You're well located for your clients here within Fremantle and the demand for business environmental advice is just growing as we discussed earlier. There's lots of like-minded people and Kevin and uh, the panel were just talking before we started that, um, you know, sometimes being like-minded is the one thing and then delivering it within a business um, is where the, the tricky bit lies in the implementation. So I'm going to start with that really high level and very broad question, Miles. Um, why, first of all, would you green your business and then how do you think we should approach it? Thank you, Denisha. Um, yeah, very nice introduction and, of course, Fremantle, we're better to be talking about greening your business. But as we are talking earlier, <laughs> there's still a lot of um, ground to be made. Um, so I guess you could also say, why wouldn't you green your business? Um, the, I've, I, in preparation for this uh, session, I jotted down a whole lot of uh, reasons why you might green, consider greening your business. And I thought it, it, it just a drop-dead obvious thing to do these days. Um, so obviously the first thing is doing the right thing by the planet and for our health and what have you. But there's also alignment with the values and expectations of your staff and your customers and they're increasingly, they're growing very strongly all the time. Um, as people become more savvy and aware of um, the environmental um, obligations and um, the problems that are arising to the planet. You've got your brand and reputation to consider also and, and, and avoiding environmental criticism. With social media, environmental criticism gets going very quickly, particularly if you start um, greenwashing and what have you, which of course is a topic we'll get onto later. Then there's uh, increasingly commercial advantages from um, going green with the growing savviness of the uh, customers. Um, and uh, 
I guess there's a lot of opportunities to be a first mover in this space at the moment with um, doing green things. There's the su supply chain requirements also. So if you're supplying to green people or even um, non-green businesses, there's quite a lot now of requirements in the um, by the um, your customers for greenness, um, particularly say like big state departments and uh, federal departments, they have requirements in the tendering contracts around about, for instance, ISO ISO fourteen thousand one um, uh, um, certification. Um, so. They don't want to be supporting brown businesses, people that are going to uh, um, badmouth their names. Um, there's cost savings, of course, um, they, and that's increasingly relevant now that um, with increasing price of water, power, waste disposal. So greening your business, of course, is going to reduce those costs both reputational management and that stakeholder perspectives as well as some really strong cost, I guess, savings yeah. and a need, I guess, to be able to measure all of that, which we'll come to later in Very the panel. True. Absolutely, Miles. And so where does one start? You know, it's a, it's a big picture, even just dealing with all of those different stakeholder expectations and potentially some of the compliance issues. When you go into a business, what do you look for? How does it start? Well, of course, every business is different. Um and so if, when, I, when I go into business, I look at the nature of the business and you've got, and it's, it's classic change management stuff. You look for the low hanging apples and the big bang for your buck and where, where they're going to get some motivation from getting some quick wins on the board. Uh, so for example, if you went into a food oriented business, you might look at their supply chain. Where are they sourcing their food from? What are their ingredients uh, for the supplies from? Um, what are the production systems that are involved? What are the transportation um, involved in getting those um, supplies to the business? Um, how are they managing their wastes? Are they, are they seeking to reduce waste? Are they reusing things? Uh, are they composting their waste? Those sort of issues. Um, their containers, of course, this is a classic one, particularly with plastic, plastic free July. So much uh, plastic is used as containers in food businesses. So are they looking for alternatives? Are they looking for um, recycled content or um, uh, compostable containers and what have you? And then looking at their water and energy use again, of course. So it is a very systems-based approach. I mean, even as you're talking there, we're thinking about supply chain of where goods are coming from, how they're produced right through to, to the end product. We're thinking about packaging and how that works. And I guess some of those challenges and trade-offs are really difficult in a business. I'm thinking you mentioned food businesses, and I know I was talking um, to um, a colleague only last night and we were talking about the fact that, you know, to heat or to when you've got a whole processing system that's made up to deal with a certain type of packaging, you actually almost have to reinvest and rechange that whole supply chain, but also manage things like heat on products that perhaps haven't been designed for it. When you're looking at all of that, you mentioned the low hanging fruit. I mean, do you start with finding something or do you go to the bigger kind of whole of business approach? Well, I, th I think I, yeah, um, you've also got to look at what the motivation of the business is. Increasingly, businesses are motivated by bringing down their carbon footprint. So, therefore, that's a criterion you would use in looking for the low-hanging fruit. Where are their big carbon emission points? Generally, it's about bio usage. So, heating water, heating food, heating things, uh, that's the big area to t tackle and then you would look at waste and that's also the generally I find the second biggest carbon emitter in the business when you look at the whole supply chain of yeah. waste. Yeah um, so, so again, water waste and and then where your energy use really comes from I guess yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a, um, a water tragic <laughs> and unfortunately water is a bit down the picking order it's always energy and waste mm -hmm. and then maybe water third or fourth 
It's interesting though, isn't it? Because if you look at like brewers, for example, you know, we can talk about saving water, but if you even look at one bottle of beer that we're drinking, just how much water is involved in some of those processes blows people's minds when they actually find out, doesn't it? And of course, they don't realise how energy intensive water is. I mean, I say it's low in carbon, but it's still very high because of pumping water and the wastewater around the countryside. Mm. Most people wouldn't know that Watercorp is the biggest user of energy on the southwest interconnected grid. Wow. They have almost a million tonnes of carbon dioxide emission a year uh, because of that pumping water around the countryside. And it's yeah. such a trade-off. And I, I'll, I'll introduce Ruth next on our panel because it's always interesting when we think about even water and nature and how that whole cycle works, um, particularly in a dry climate like Australia. So I think it's a really good point you make. And I was saying to the panel earlier, I love how these discussions sometimes go into different places. And that's a fun fact I didn't know about the water corp. And uh, certainly even at the chamber, we've noticed the more tenants we get in the building, the more water we're actually using. And so it does add up really, really quickly from a cost perspective as well. Thank you so much, Miles. We'll come back to some of those um, ideas and I'd love to talk about traps and hurdles um, with you a little bit later on the panel. But let's turn to nature, given we're talking about water anyway. Next on our panel is Ruth Cribbs, our Land and Restoration Lead at Greening Australia. Ruth brings considerable experience in community education and environmental design to her role at Greening Australia, coupled with the knowledge of sustainable land management practices. I first met Ruth um, in an amazing presentation she did just about some of the work that she has done um, with the community to really drive and inspire lasting change within our environments. Um, you've worked with school and community groups delivering environmental education, you've done large scale restoration projects and you've even I guess worked directly with smaller communities on parking and greening their own environments and having that ownership over the work that they're doing. When you're not doing all of this amazing, life-changing, uh, greening for us, our world, Ruth, you're often elbow deep in your own garden. And I guess nature is a, is a big part of what drives you. Um, as I mentioned, you've worked on a number of projects that have seen communities come together to truly make a difference and improve their natural environments. So what, what is the importance of everyday nature in our urban environments and even in a place like Fremantle? Yeah, thanks, Denisha. It's um, a really important question. Often when we think about everyday nature, we're really talking about how we interact on our on our daily basis, when we commute to work, what sort of things are we passing by? You know, even when you're at work, where do you have lunch and what the interactions are those? And we know that uh, our urban ecologies really play a huge impact on uh, reducing biodiversity loss, climate change, water cleaning properties as well, um, and the urban heat island effect. So all of those things, there's really important things that trees and nature bring into that system. Um, and how we engage with that obviously has different mental health benefits as well. So a lot of it, if you were to think about, say, your, your commute in your day, um, what sort of things do you pass by? Uh, I was just thinking about this on the way to the train. For me, uh, walking down to the train station, I walk down the neighbourhood street and there's all our, our verge trees. So we know that when we have green spaces and corridors, we tend to walk further to get to places as well, which means we're driving less. Um, so there's a lot of secondary benefits and things that we add on to those things as well. It's amazing as you say that. I was thinking during um, COVID, one of the panellists suggested that we just need to not eat in, in shared environments because that's how we pass COVID very easily. And so we encouraged at the chamber that everyone just had to go outside to actually eat their lunch. And just what an amazing difference taking 15 or 20 minutes out of your day to sit under a tree across the road actually made to all of our productivity and workspace. So I think there's something so true in that. In an urban environment though, and we talk about that urban heat, it's difficult in an established city like Fremantle where a number of our businesses are located, where they're already established, it's often fairly tight. There isn't a lot of space. What do you recommend in those environments? How can we make a difference? Yeah, I guess it's being creative with what you have as well and understanding that you might have a, a business or premises which is really hard to integrate nature and trees into it but you can always be a part of that conversation 
um, and it's about that culture as well. So how are you engaging your workspace in that? Are you encouraging having breaks outside so that people have time in nature um, for those human and social benefits? But also there's creative ways. I mean, you might have parking lots or things. Um, how can you integrate trees in there to shade road surfaces and and mediums that hold and emit heat as well that contribute to this urban heat island effect. Um, there's also really creative designs out there now with rooftop gardens and vertical walls and things like that. Um, and designers are getting better and better with integrating some of these things in. Uh, a lot of people are bringing plants back indoors as well. Um, yeah, so there's many different ways and I think it's just really being creative with that but also understanding that it might not necessarily be that you have space to do some of that but you can go out and spend time. You might have a staff day where you go out and help the local school plant out their verge garden as well. So knowing that you can still contribute to that community and the biodiversity in that community, whether it's not in your immediate space where there are some difficulties uh, you walk down like the coffee strip here and mm. it's very hard for a business to start implementing gardens and trees and things like that here as well. Absolutely. But where you are making sure that we're, we're not putting plastic in there, that we're actually dealing with real trees. And even as you were talking then, I was just thinking about the car park that's sitting directly behind us at the chamber. And maybe we might have a staff planting day because we have 23 bays and it's pretty dry and heat hot out there. So, you know, there are really small things that, that we can do if we actually do get creative. As I said, I think, uh, yeah, we might be doing that next week, team. Um, <laughs> be great. So education and advocacy is a big part of what the conversation needs to be. And I know we're going to talk to Rebecca in a little while just about how effective, you know, education and advocacy can be. It's so important when it comes to nature, isn't it? And what role do you think businesses can play here? Uh, this is a huge part of it, in, in my opinion, and it's a part that I'm particularly passionate about. I think if we are really to make resilient communities and lasting change, people need to be a part of that story, need to buy into that story, need to understand that um, and need to write that story as mm -hmm. well. So it's all about how even though you might be, you might plant trees in the, the car park next week, but it's like how can we t tell more than just plant trees? Mm -hmm. Why are we planting trees? How do we plant trees? And understanding that by doing that, you have a number of staff members that you have the power to influence and uh create behaviour change as well and they can go home and start doing things like that in their own backyards as well. So really understanding that advocacy is super important because you never know how many people you're going to influence along the way um, and really when we're looking at tackling biodiversity loss and climate change, it's a cumulative approach and everyone can do a small part of that and together that collective impact is really huge. Absolutely. And it's a wonderful segue into our third panellist, who I'm sure when she started out didn't quite realise how many people along the way she was going to pull into her journey. Uh, Rebecca Prince-Roots, founder of Plastic Free July. Um, Rebecca founded the Plastic Free July campaign in 2011 and evolved the campaign into a global movement in 2000 that in 2021 empowered 140 million people across 190 countries to join a community and commit to choosing to refuse single-use plastic in their lives. An extraordinary number, Rebecca. Um, you're now the Executive Director of the Plastic Free Foundation, which delivers the annual challenge and has a vision of a world without plastic waste. And we're inching there closer and closer and closer. Um, and this month has been particularly important in that. Um, with over 25 years experience in environmental and waste management, community engagement and sustainability, Rebecca, you draw on your experience of working in the waste industry, uh, researching marine debris, pioneering the public plastic waste conservation and advising governments on plastic reform to provide a unique perspective and internationally renowned expertise in tackling the global waste problem. You've been a number of, through a number of presenting um, opportunities, you're a proficient speaker and a TEDx speaker, and you break down problems into manageable and actionable steps. 
so much over the last decade. Um, and this month sees the enforcement introduced into Western Australia on single use ba a ban of single-use plastic bulbs, cups, hot foods, plates, cutlery, stirrers, straws, expanded polystyrene food containers, thick plastic bags and helium balloon releases. Must be quite the month to actually see that enforcement come in for you, Rebecca, after such a long journey. And in stage two, set for 2023 in January, we'll be deepening that ban to include a variety of every other day plastics. I'm a little overwhelmed just reading that out. I can't even imagine what it's been like living it. Um, can you talk us through that journey and what this month's changes really mean for business? Thank, thank you, Denisha. Um, look, it, it has been quite the journey. When I first started back in 2011, I would never have imagined the journey that, that this impulsive decision, some would say rash decision, to try and avoid single-use plastics for the following month, which just happened to be July. I never knew where that would take me. And it started for me when I visited our local recycling facility here in, in Canningvale. So it's where all, I'm a Fremantle resident and so it's where the contents of our, my yellow littered bin, my recycling, go when it's collected each fortnight to be recycled. And for me, confronting my waste for the first time, actually seeing, first of all, how much we produce, you know, I knew kind of what my, what my bin looked like, but seeing my rubbish with my, with my neighbours and everyone in my street and my suburb was really overwhelming. And then starting to learn about the particular challenges of recycling plastic and the plastic pollution problem, our challenges with recycling, really led me to have this sudden realisation that the very best thing that I could do would be to use less, to consume less, to accept less and just make some different changes in my life. Um, I think it's important to look back because I think sometimes it's, you know, particularly when you're passionate about these issues, you think, oh, like change is really hard. And, and it's not that it's not hard, but the change that I've seen over this last decade, like it, I remember it was only five years ago, um, I was at an event and the then Environment Minister said, we will never ban plastic bags in Western Australia because they, um, they don't harm wildlife, you know, despite scientific evidence to the contrary. Um, but, you know, fast forward the clock in, in 2019, we banned lightweight bags in, um, now we have containers for change, the container deposit scheme, which I, I am biased because I'm on the board of containers for change, but think we have the best scheme in, in Australia. And now we have this single use plastics ban and WA is actually leading the nation in terms of our action on tackling single-use plastics, having helium balloon releases in our ban, having the thicker plastic bags, so those department-style, um, department-store-style bags with the handles and, and our bans, like we're the first state in the in the country. The ones that they used to say just encourage reuse of the plastic yeah. bag, but they're still plastic. I'm, I'm a reusable bag, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, but, you know, as, as we all discovered when the lightweight plastic bag ban came in, we could still shop and buy food and we could just juggle one or two items or remember our own bags or, you know, juggle, you know, a lot of items if we forgot the, the bags or grab a cardboard box. And there's so many solutions. So it's just a matter of, like you, you said, Ruth, like changing our behaviour and, and forming new habits. And it's been Really incredible to see what I think has started with this ground swell of community behaviour change and then as people made changes in their own lives and discovered the joy of that, the joy of making a difference, of having less waste in your bin um, and a whole bunch of those secondary benefits and then taking it into their community. So the Boomerang Bags initiatives, uh, I remember when the the South Rio Farmers Market went single-use plastic bag free and and the number of times Fremantle Council and other local governments tried it and all of these local initiatives um, that were the first movers and the early adopters and then we're seeing the supermarkets and the bigger uh, businesses and then governments uh, regulating. So, you know, I think behaviour change and, and the role of Plastic Free July and this entire movement against single-use plastics has really shown a way that we can 
um, all be part of the solution of what is a problem that that everyone is concerned about and no one is okay with. It's a really interesting point you make. And Miles, I'm interested in, in a comment that I hear often, and, and Rebecca, I think you're so right in that as individuals, we want to feel like we're making a difference. And as Ruth said, when you get a community together and they're, they're moving on their park and they're planting, there's an amazing sense of well-being through that process that as individuals we know. Often though, I hear that our individual effort is just negligible compared to business and what business does. I'm interested in your comment on that, Miles. How do we take those individual values and make sure that businesses are able to adapt to some of these things in a much bigger way? I'll get you just to take the mic as well. Yeah, um, I, I guess businesses, I find, are very receptive to what their staff want. So individual staff probably don't appreciate the power they do have to make a difference at the business level. So there's one, one way, and obviously a lot of all this green movement started with the Agenda 21 thing, the start, uh, think local, act global. And I've ever since um, coming across that, I've been a real disciple of, of, of that concept. Um, from small things, big things grow. And like, for example, um, I go around the community picking up litter mm. in my walks. And I, my hope is that other people will see me doing it. And from that, they will start doing and it'll, it'll grow. Mm. That sort of, so it's, you know, just a very, a microcosm of the concept. But can those little steps actually add up to making a sustainable difference if we have say, like we were talking earlier, that, you know, we're using water and on an industrial scale and even the producer of our water is, is contributing to such a large amount of carbon emissions. Where's the balance? Like how do we make sure that our little collective effort somehow equates perhaps some of the larger, bigger businesses? Yes, I, I'm not sure where to go there. Uh, yeah, it's tough. Um, it is. Um, I go into a lot of businesses and um, looking at water mm. and I model all the uses of water around the business and time time again it's the small things which are being replicated many many times around the business which actually make the big difference at a business level. Um, so, for example, uh, well, a swimming, swimming pool, swimming aquatic centre, people will think they're huge water users because they've got all these pools. But in fact, it's the amount of time people spend in the showers. So if you can get people to use their showers less, That's press buttons on the showers, that makes a huge difference to an difference to an aquatic centre's water use. It's really interesting. Um, Rebecca, I'd like to pick up just following on on that point of the how the little things grow. And, and, you know, as we discussed earlier, you've been an amazing example of that. And using, I guess, a bit of Miles' shower example, what are some of the things that within businesses, particularly for plastics, that you see that businesses can incrementally change that make a big difference overall? Yeah, uh, interesting. So, Miles, you were talking about how um, the staff are often the first movers and, and influencing. And that's what we see a lot in businesses. So we see uh, we have a lot of corporates now participating in Plastic Free July. And it's often that, um, a, a, and it's a very, we know it's a very successful employee engagement initiative. And so, you know, when um, a business gets involved, they might start with a conversation, they might have a plastic free morning tea. So where the challenge is, you know, to bake or bring or, or just purchase food without any plastic packaging. And then, um, yeah, it's exactly like Miles said, like look for the low hanging fruit. They might do a bin audit or they might actually do an audit of what are the plastics we're using in our operations and what's our supply chain look like. I remember working with one um, corporate in, in Sydney in, in Barangaroo and the sustainability manager there had been trying to get a bunch of changes uh, happening in the building for a number of years and it was actually doing Plastic Free July when it was their HR and their comms team really got on board with the challenge and then they started looking at their procurement so they were realising like everything was individually wrapped in single-use plastics, tea bags and the stationery, but that's where they were going to start. 
And they managed to make changes in three weeks that the sustainability manager had been championing for years. And I remember um, them saying to me, oh, Rebecca, they're like the first thing we did, we said like we're out with our pens, you know, they're still plastic, but we don't want them individually wrapped in single-use plastic. And the supplier said, no, no problems, we can deal with that. We'll just unpackage them before <laughs> before we send them to you. Like, no, 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 no. And, and they ended up changing. One of their suppliers, they changed. Another one, they're like, yep, no, we're going to make a switch. And that's what really excites me, you know, like it's great. This individual behaviour change is important. But when you start looking at a business level, when you can influence supply chains, and then the more and more business, yes, at the start, it's often more expensive, but then as more and more people ask for it, then the, 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 um, the financials start to, to change. And, you know, so many times when we were writing the book, we'd we were researching these fantastic stories that we would read in the media. I remember and this was just slightly just before COVID, um, Air New Zealand for Plastic Free July, I read in the, the paper, um, they were removing 55 million pieces of single-use plastic from their um, operations in, in a single year. And, and we did this interview of their head of sustainability and I said, how did this happen? Like how did all these people around the world do Plastic Free July and we don't even know about it? And they said, well, it started off with one of their employees did it. They felt really good about it. The next year they brought it into the workplace. It was their most successful employee engagement initiative ever. At the same time, it was their number one letter of complaint from their customers, how much single-use plastics was in, um, they were seeing on the flights and in the lounges, et cetera. And then the third year, they did an audit and they uh, looked right across their supply chain and did this big piece on reducing. So it's this, I love that story because it's this, and, and I've heard so many stories like that um, when the state, I'm really so delighted this year that the city of Fremantle has proclaimed, declared July as officially as plastic free July. And I remember talking to, to um, Hannah, the mayor, about that. And I'm saying, oh, and the state of New York always declares it, you know, how come uh, Fremantle hasn't? So, um, yeah, full credit to the city of Fremantle. But, yeah, again, when we interviewed an assemblywoman from the state of New York, it was the same story. She was concerned about pl the plastic that and the images that she was seeing about it being in our oceans and the pollution problem and harming our wildlife decided to do something about it, took Plastic Free July, took it into the um, into the state and, and across uh, a number of agencies in New York. They introduced a single-use plastic ban and, and things changed from there. And it's, you know, there's, there's no silver bullet to this problem, um, but it's a material that we all engage with in our daily lives. And that's why I think it's something that we can all be involved in and I think you know to Miles's point of low-hanging fruit um, it's something that's so visual that everybody cares about and people can do something it's in the doing that I think we're seeing this change. And I'd love Ruth to follow up a little bit on that um, because I think you're as you're describing that Rebecca I think you know all of us now are at a point where we have enough knowledge where we feel uncomfortable with plastic. You know, when you are unwrapping each individual mint, you go, oh, there is a lot of plastic here. And I think part of that motivates change. And as you said, the fact that that even little bit of uncomfortableness that results in a complaint or results in an employee making difference has a flow on effect. And part of that is knowledge. Part of that is our society now knows that plastic isn't ideal for the environment. Ruth, one of the things you work with in communities um, when you're looking at, you know, some of the greening projects that you've done is there's a sense of, I know I want to make a change, but I don't have enough information around what I can do. Or if I do plant a tree, I've got to look after it and that feels really hard. And how do I actually go about that? How do you overcome that hurdle of, I guess, the amount of knowledge people need to feel confident to make that change themselves? Yeah, I think that's a really big part. It's it's an intimidating space for a lot of people. Like when you're talking about, you know, just putting a, a tree on your verge and people being like, oh, but I don't have a green thumb. What kind of soil do I need? Do I put amendments in? Do I put it in with the plastic pot? 
in there, which I've seen as well. So it's really, um, yeah, a really important space. And lots of the work we look at, we had a project running for the past two years called Our Park, Our Place. And that was working with three local government groups across Perth, looking at the urban heat island, but also understanding community attitudes and behaviours around public open spaces and green spaces. Um, and in there, we were looking at three local parks and how we could essentially look at greening our parks, but they were a satellite for behaviour change. The idea was that we wanted to develop the skills of people in their public parks where they interact so that they could take them home. So a lot of it was that Greening Australia has always hosted community planting days and uh, we're out there often with schools and doing that, but it's really embedding that what we try and call the, the competence, confidence and connection. So if you can create the, the three C's for behaviour change, you're likely to equip people with the skills to do that. Mm -hmm. So in a planting day, uh, we were doing verge makeover demonstrations where it was like a whole verge was made over and it was talked through how you removed the, the existing turf, what you needed to do the soil to pre prepare for it, how to get your native plants planted in so that they would survive and your care and ongoing things. So, But also being aware that that community connection around that also plays a role because it's most likely there's someone in your community who has a green thumb and knows a hell of a lot about nature and is also really passionate about sharing it. Mm. And so when you can connect people together, that often spurs on its own journey itself and inspires others. Similar to staff coming in, I think you've got to have community champions or workplace champions who are really key in those mm. points. So a lot of that we, we try and identify who those people are and often they might be friends groups as well when we're talking about biodiversity um, and bringing in other people to share that journey with them. And I imagine also keep it motivating because I think, and I'll come, Miles, just to ask you a question in a second, but one of the things with, you know, composting or plastic free or planting your garden, you know, often we get these waves of enthusiasm when we get out and we do it all and then it's all going really well. And then, I don't know, you go on holidays for a week and three plants die or somehow the compost gets mixed up. And then before you know it, you're back in those old habits again. And I imagine for many businesses, even having been a consultant for many years, Miles, we go in, we make recommendations, we make changes, everything's going great. You come back in six months time and it's all gone and it's just a report on the shelf. Measurement, I imagine, is a really important part of keeping our motivation up. What else do we need to do to make sure that businesses keep making those changes? Um, yeah, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there. So it's one of the very disappointing things about being a consultant. So you go in, you do your measurements, you provide the report and you never see them again. But you get inklings that the report has gone into a filing cabinet. Mm. Very disappointing. Um, I usually attach to my report recommendations on how to make it stick. Mm. And they include things like, yes, ongoing measurement and reporting um, target, measurement against targets, reporting up to board and things like that. If you, if you entrench that in the business, it's far more likely to stick. Um, but too often it doesn't happen. Mm. Yeah, and as a consultant, you, you're powerless. You can make the recommend. You can take a horse to water, but you can't yeah. make it drink. Absolutely, and I love um, Rebecca that that's part of plastic free July is that it does come around every year. So it's like that memory trigger. And I know my planting has changed dramatically since I've gone Sunday is plant day and then you actually have to deal with your plants every Sunday. And having that in the diary means that you just become a habit. Is that part of what the Plastic Free July does, is that each year it just sets that tone and sets that reminder? Well, I've got to say it feels like there's only about three months between actually <laughs> Plastic Free July. So if anyone knows how to squeeze a few more months in because it comes around quicker than ever. Mm. Um, yeah, look at look it is, and the great thing. So we do a lot of um, a lot of research. We do a lot of evaluation. Um, we know that eighty four percent of our participants make one or more changes that become habits or a way of life, and 
So it's kind of like it's not really it's not really plastic free because it's just single use plastic. So it's not really just July, but it's it is good to have that month as that moment. And it was interesting. I heard from one of our participants yesterday that said, "Oh, it's really." You know, I've kept up a lot of behaviours, but there's a few that I've slipped. And this year I'm going to tackle something else. So when people take the challenge, they don't have to commit to everything. Like we're not um, single-use plastic-free. We've probably reduced our waste by 60 or 70% um, in, in in our home. Um, so, but it's an opportunity to do better. It's It's a reset. It's an opportunity to get other people on board it's an opportunity to look at well what are the particular challenges um, at the moment so when people take the challenge they don't have to um, do everything for the whole month you can do it for a day you can do it for a week you can do it for the month you can try and tackle you know packaging or for you it might just be the water bottles or the coffee cups or whatever that is so it's really a a choose your own adventure or a choose your own change mm. um, and what that change is is very different for every person and I feel like it's a it's a journey and um, just going back to your point about behavior change Ruth really um, like we don't see ourselves as educators or raising awareness and there's been an incredible amount of that over the deck the last decade and whilst we're very motivated by the problem the way that uh, we deliver behavior change is not telling people about the problem or educating them it's about showing what to do so through our research we know that people care they want to know what to do but importantly they want to know what others like them are doing so we share lots of stories so we share stories of you know, my, my colleague Lucy from Lendlease who made all these changes at Barangaroo or the airline or um, what a school is doing to tackle the plastics in their canteen or we're just sharing one about the town of East Fremantle which last year at the George Street Festival went single-use free, not just single-use plastic but single-use free with 35 different food and beverage um outlets so and they're the stories that well first of all it's giving credit and it's acknowledging that for a business or an organization to make change there's a cost in terms of time and 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 often a financial can be a financial cost so it's recognizing um, and acknowledging them but also importantly inspiring others and I really feel that we need to get better at that as we tackle sustainability and sharing what others are doing, collaborating and sharing ideas and celebrating um, stories of change. And I think that's really important. And I'd love to see um, a lot more of that in Fremantle and acknowledging the efforts that businesses are going to to make a difference. And such, so many different points you make along that path. It reminds me of even, you know, projects or whenever life feels really overwhelming, breaking it down into smaller little chunks just makes it manageable, doesn't it? And we can't change everything all at once. We're not going to solve the world's problems, you know, here and now in Fremantle tomorrow. But those little incremental things we can do and just picking a couple of those as a starting point is just such an amazing point. I'm conscious I'm talking a lot with our fabulous panel. Um, did we have any questions from the room? Kevin, yep. Thanks. Um, thank you, it's been very informative. Um, but as a, a small business owner, is there a central resource that we could go to that would tell us about the correct tree to plant, correct plants to plant? So we're not, you know, as Miles put it, you know, having to cover them in water every five minutes to, you know, keep them alive because I've got a, a great knack for killing them. And also um, something, you know, if it was one area we could go to which had, um, you know, uh, things on planting, on single-use plastics, everything really that a small business could do and the small changes we could make would be beneficial because, you know, in these straightened times as well, it's very hard for us to sort of, gather up that information and also for small businesses to get say a consultant in to actually um, do that. Yeah. So I just wondered, is the one? 
I'll start with Ruth, given I know your passion is around the trees, Kevin. Yeah, I think with the trees, you've got a very incredible resource in this area of a pace nursery um, who their knowledge is amazing and fantastic on plants and they, they seed source and grow local provenant species from the Swan Coastal Plain. So um, you can go in there, you can go in during the week and purchase plants and you also have your... Um, your local government here subsidises planting through, I think it's the month of April, so it's passed for this year um, at a pace so you yeah. can get, I think, 40 plants per household. Um, so there's incentives there. Yeah, I'd encourage a pace being an incredible local resource as your your first point of call. Sunday drive over the river though, Kevin, you have to actually cross the <laughs> Sunday planting day over to about, but it's it is an amazing spot. resource. Yeah. For those of you who aren't aware, it's um, literally just over the Fremantle Bridge, North Fremantle, just on the corner of the river there. It's, it is yeah. an amazing resource. If you haven't been there, the staff are, are great and you can get a lot of resources from them. They also occasionally have workshop programs and things running there. Uh, and have community volunteers who support the nursery. Um, even at the nursery, I think it's the the longest running community garden in per the whole of Perth is located there. So definitely go and have a look. Um, your local governments, I find with local governments, sometimes they're on, I'm not terribly familiar with uh, where the city of Fremantle at is in terms of their species lists and things, but, um, each local government's mm. on a journey of their own with that. Um, Joondalup have an amazing list of species on their website, don't they, with yeah. all the different Indigenous names and what they're used for. And so I think some have gone mm. gone a lot further and a lot further through that process of changing from perhaps some of our exotic species that they um, used to plant and now are looking at native trees and exactly that the cultural significance of a lot of these species because they can be identifiers of season change as well and we've got those those Noongar seasons which are, are really important and again that's all a part of that story when you you weave in that knowledge and understanding there's more interest from community as well to do that mm. so I'd say the local government and particularly a pace are your best resources here. And plastics Rebecca where do we go to find out what we need to do? Yeah, um, and sorry, I don't have an answer for your question about the holistic, um, you know, a holistic place for, for businesses to look at um, all of their, um, the different sustainability issues. I don't know, Miles, if you have a recommendation there, but um, like I said, we try through Plastic Free July, it's plasticfreejuly.org. We've got lots of um, ideas and, and solutions in there of stories for businesses, how to get started, how to make change, some handy resources like a poster to put up in the kitchen to remind people to take a reusable cup when they go to a cafe. I remember which box is the bin is the recycling bin. That's something we struggle with quite yes, a lot. <laughs> yes, I've seen that, that a few um, businesses struggle in, you know, um, you know, introducing containers for change, having a designated containers for change bin for um, the eligible beverage containers in yeah. businesses. Isn't, isn't and again, good? mental note for events that we actually need to be doing that more regularly as well because we're a big consumer of, um, you know, bottles and those sorts of things as our yeah. news. So. Absolutely. There's still a staggering number and I don't have it on the top of my head. I think it's something like we use 1.5 billion single-use be um, beverage containers in WA that are eligible for containers for change. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them are still not going through the scheme, either through a refund point or through our yellow-lidded bin system. A lot of them are going to landfill. We know a lot of them are happening in that's happening in public places. Um, we also know it's happening through commercial waste. So it's happening, it, a lot of them are ending up in in the waste that's being generated by businesses at events um, that are going to landfills. So, you know, that's a great thing that, you know, whether you're as a business motivated by that 10 cents um, or not, um, but even if, you know, the 10 cents isn't, isn't material there, there's so many charities, community groups that are collecting 
And we know that putting the, that material through the scheme, we have fantastic recycling outcomes. All of those glass um, ginger beer or, or beer bottles um, are ending up in South Australia. They're being made into wine bottles. We have 100% recycling of all the materials through that scheme. And unlike um, material that's going necessarily through the yellow littered bin, which can be contaminated or have other materials because it's separated at source, it can be made into new bottles. So we've got a great bottle to bottle solution. So it's really helping the circular economy. And when you're recycling the beverage containers and you're not paying for them to go to waste as, as well. So it's, you know, what I think what we're increasingly learning that things that are good for the planet are also good for people and good for communities and and good for business as mm -hmm. as well. And I think as a public, we ne need to get behind our businesses more too. Absolutely. And back to, I guess, Kevin, your question, um, I think from wh where we started, where Miles was mentioning that every business is different. And so maybe, and Miles, I'll get you maybe to comment on that, but it's about starting with identifying what your business needs and then sorting through the information of where you can maybe find it. Would that be fair to say? For sure. Um, and I, I guess you you do need some kind of expertise in putting that lens on your business. Um, very easy to Google all the information in the world about what a business can do, but it's once it's identified where it wants to go, you know, if I want to improve my business water management and I Google it, I'm overwhelmed with tips. Some are more practical than others. But, uh, yes, I, it's getting that point, first point going uh, where you've got some kind of level of idea about where you, what you want to do. and where. Picking up on Rebecca's point about waste and contamination, I've been the bin Nazi now for a number of events, including the East Metal Festival, and it... To me, the thing that comes through so clearly is it's all about labelling the, the bins. Mm -hmm. um, contamination, of course, is the big reason why we have problems with um, recycling. If, if only people would, would put good labels on bins, it would, uh, I believe, reduce a lot of the contamination. And when I have been to an event where there's very clear labels on what goes in what bins, people are far more compliant. So it was just a side issue from my experience. And I guess for, as Kevin mentioned, you know, businesses and particularly small growing businesses into that medium size, you know, time pressure is so intense. And we, as we discussed earlier, we can't change everything all at once. So maybe it is about identifying one or two areas of your business that you go, this month in July, we're going to tackle plastics and have a look at what plastics we use. Maybe as spring comes, we'll have a look at where our greening and our planting opportunities may be. And maybe during summer, we tackle water or breaking it down into some of those key areas so that we can actually address them in sizable chunks. Are there any questions online or further in the group? I'm going to finish, I guess, with a little bit more of a a controversial side of it. I mean, we've talked about systems and water preservation. We've talked about nature and the importance of it. We've talked about plastics. We've talked about waste. That's a lot to get our heads around and they all come from a place of wanting to make a difference and wanting to make a change. We started the conversation in the beginning of the introduction to this around greening your business versus greenwashing your business. And we know that there is competitive advantage now for businesses professing to be green, um, that consumers are looking for that. Um, we're seeing climate change measurement being, you know, a very strong compliance issue as well. Environmental credentials are rising. When do you think it's appropriate to start promoting your activities in the green space? Um, do we have to have made all these differences, got all these traction on the board? Is it about intent? When does greening your business become greenwashing your business in terms of promotion? And I'll just maybe run down the panel on that one. So that that's a very big area and one that I'm, well, even ASIC, APRA, ACCC are very yeah. aware of at the moment. They've been putting out a fair amount of press in the last month about 
Um, greenwashing is on there, firmly on their radar, but of course that's big business rather than small business. That's lifting teeth, saying their bottles are completely recyclable and forgetting the lid is one of the recent yeah. cases, wasn't it? <laughs> exactly, all those sort of things. And then I'm also acutely aware and concerned about Australia and indeed WA trades heavily on an image of greenness, mm. which is paper thin. There's very little to back it up and it only takes a charlatan to get in that space and to be uncovered internationally and we lose a lot of our trade. And that sort of thing really worries me. So I, th I feel that's a, a big part of the dangers of having greenwashing happening. And as you say, because there is so much business motivation to be looking green at the moment, people are going to get there. So then where do you go? You have to prove your credentials, but then you're saddled with a whole lot of bureaucracy and no one wants a huge amount of bureaucracy. You've got to look at your supply chain. How do you look at your supply chain? Again, a whole lot of a bureaucracy in evaluating all, all of your suppliers. So it's not an easy, easy gig at all. Um, and I guess there's also a bit of confusion out there about what is a green business? People will think a business that makes green products is a green business, not at all. It's somewhat just because you're mining a a renewable um, energy metal doesn't mean the supply that you're mining it in a green way, for example. Um, so um, I'm not sure that's answered your question but it, I could go on and on mm. about, about this and obviously you've got to make sure your staff are on board as well and acting, walking the talk, they're being consistent with the business objective and where it wants to go, mm. alignment and um, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think alignment's a really important part of that. I mean, Ruth, I'll just jump to you on that. Do we wait until, you know, we've got a whole forest growing outside our business or is it about sharing intent? When do we start promoting it and when does it become, I guess, where's that line between being genuine and greenwashing? Yeah, I, I think it's quite a difficult question, to be honest. And I, I think it's interesting because a lot of Obviously, we were just talking about behaviour change and it's really important to share that story to um, encourage others to take on that journey as well. Mm. Um, I'm a huge person about uh, it's all about doing, uh, making sure your actions are what you're talking about. Uh, so, yeah, I would I think with your business, yeah, live, walk the walk, talk the talk kind of thing. Do that before you start promoting it Putting stamps and all your products that you've yeah. Made. yeah that's really interesting like I'm also working with a farmer at the moment who was a certified organic um, producer of corn uh, and here the the actual difficulties around the certification meant he decided not to have that even though his product is entirely organic and that has a market difference on his product mm. on the supermarket shelves so he's decided not to do that uh, even though he lives by those rules as well because um, there was a number of hurdles and upkeep and things with mm. the licences as well and it, it didn't make sense for him. But I thought that's really interesting. I think that's, to me, that's someone who said, I'm going to do it regardless and I, d I don't need the, the need stamp to, to show. About it. And it is interesting because, you know, back to Kevin's point in small business or to large business, there's such a cost in compliance and certification and annually keeping all of those things up to date that it is, I imagine, a, you know, I, I guess a balance between having the stamp versus living the values and promoting it. And I, I guess it's like anything in life, you know, you've got a salesman that will tell you all of the things and potentially be a charlatan or you've got someone that just has a great product and it sells itself and I think they're some of the decisions we have to make. Rebecca, did you have anything you wanted to comment on the whole sort of greenwashing conversation? Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's definitely a role for government here and, and, and the regulation. Um, Denisha, we've talked about, we, we've got this project coming up trying to tackle the single-use coffee cup and I was actually at the, the cafe um, across the road <laughs> Yesterday, and they were, um, you know, they were telling us that, um, oh, their single-use cups are fine because they're environmentally friendly, and um, you know, I, I think there's a um, there's a lot of businesses that are 
thinking they're doing the right thing, they're paying more because they want to do the right thing. They, they, they know their customers are concerned, but these so-called environmentally friendly cups are still made from fossil fuels. Mm. And even uh, the cups that are truly compostable, they're going to end up in public place bins or the bin at the office and they're going to landfill. Mm. Um, and I think for me, one of the really important things across all of these conversations that we need to remember is that the end of the day, going back to your opening comment about the acknowledgement of country and custodianship of this land, is that we are using too much. We have to be more resourceful. And like if everyone lived like the average Australian, we'd need four planet Earths. So the best thing that we can do is actually start to reduce um, but look, I, and I think for businesses that's, it is such a challenging time, but I think it's that choosing that low hanging fruit, choosing the one thing that you're going to tackle this month or this year, really walking the talk and doing it and being open and transparent that it's a journey and finding who is that, you know, whether it's the, the greening Australia for the for the trees like finding that reputable independent organisation and saying, right, we're going to do this, we're going to tackle this, rather than trying to do everything at once and not having that longevity that um, that Miles was talking about. So uh, I, th I think it's a minefield to be navigating, particularly with the plastics mm -hmm. and, the, and the packaging issue. Um and I think there's also a role for being for being transparent and, and and also calling on our governments and our leadership as well. I remember, you know, where it's something we've heard a lot from, say, council staff is they're like, we're doing all this work, the public are on board, we've got this great event and, and, and we're, we've switched to reusables and we go to a council meeting and everyone gets a water bottle and there's a bowl of mint. So, like... Yeah. You know, I, I loved a story recently where the Rottnest Island Authority and the Swan River Trust with their boards, they've got their branded reusable cups. Somebody does, goes and gets a coffee for everyone. Otherwise, we're seeing, you know, businesses and organisations educating and telling the public this is what you should be doing and then they're not doing it themselves. So whether it's just that we're going to, as people, make a difference in our own lives and we're going to come and we're going to front up to work and try and do the best we can in these areas or whether we're going down the complexity of as a business engaging with um, a full audit and analysis and a plan to become more sustainable or everything in between. There's, there's so many opportunities. And even as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, about the greenwashing versus promotion. You know, if you are moving into a competitive space, where you do need the stamp because that's the product that you want to produce and you want to put on the shelf. That's a very different compliance system and, and the consultants you need to engage to do all of that, to be able to be in that space. It's very different from a business that is just trying to do a few things and maybe that's part of the story and part of the sharing of, of um, I guess, experience is we're not all the way on this journey but hard on sleep we're trying to make a difference and I think as a business just understanding where you sit on that spectrum is really important as well. I feel like we could keep talking on this all day. Um, I've got so many other questions about the science of it all and all of these things but I'd love to just jump ahead into the future. Let's say we're uh, sitting here in uh, 20 years time and um, we've uh, managed to get our way through this journey. If you could leave one thing that you think you would like to see 20 years from now that businesses have done and that we'd be patting ourselves on the back for having achieved, what would it be, Rebecca? For me, it, going back, that would be going back to my point around the circular economy. So it would be that businesses are responsible and I guess I'm maybe talking about retailers and producers and manufacturers here, that they would be responsible for what they're producing and creating across the entire life cycle of that product. And and I guess that goes to individuals as well, is that what we're leaving behind 
which is actually not really what we're leaving behind. Is what we're leaving forward for future generations. So what we're not leaving the world behind um, in a worse state than we found it. We, we need to be leaving it better. So in 20 years from now, the world is, is looking as nice as it does today. How about for you, Ruth? What would be one thing you'd be get, encouraging businesses to do in the future and, and, and almost patting yourself on the back for having had this conversation with them today? Yeah, I think it's, you know, cities where pe people and nature thrive together um, is really important and how that role that businesses play in there, whether it's, you know, helping preserve our existing tree canopy when we're looking at, depending where you're starting as a business, um, a lot of places that's being removed uh, and working together as collectively as well to look at how we can create urban corridors for biodiversity to move through and reduce heat in our suburbs as well. So we're seeing actually animals in the city, we're seeing beautiful shade and we're actually enjoying those spaces. I think, yeah, yeah that's a beautiful vision for the future. How about you, Miles? Just building a lot on um, what Ruth, um, Rebecca said, um, I guess it's uh, the businesses all have a culture in 20 years' time of looking at how we can take waste, minimise use out of our system. So have true circular economy. So if, if we've got a waste, who can use it? That sort of stuff. And how can we minimise how much waste we have in at the, at, as well? Um, and not being content to just put things in the bin. I, I, I just, I worry about our non-renewable resources, which, well, for example, well, one of my hobby horses is phosphorus fertiliser, radio. Um, as a point, as a K, as, as an example, um, so we're putting a lot of phosphorus fertilizer on all our crops. It goes through our bodies into our sewage system and out to sea. Phosphorus is not renewable. It's absolutely imperative to all biological energy systems. What happens when when all that phosphorus is exhausted? Biology is going to be exhausted, and we're content at the moment to see that going out to sea. We should be having a, a true circular look at that and say, right, we've got to get it back out of our sewage system and back into farms, that sort of thing. So that's just one example of circular economy that, and I think is, which is critical to solve. Some great minds and some great problems solving out there. Absolutely. I've got three things I'm taking out of today's conversation. I hope everybody else in the room does as well. Um, a great contribution, thank you, of the complexity, but also I feel like some of the really simple things we can start doing right now. So, Rebecca, good luck with the rest of July. We're a bit late to the party, but I think we'll be having a chat to the team today about even labelling our bins and making sure that we're putting things in the right ones. Um, we'll continue to grow our indoor plants, Ruth and Miles will start to measure some of our systems. So that's what I'm taking out. I hope uh, everyone else has taken out a few messages and thank you all very, very much. Yeah.